0: Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmoe from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. Been a few developments since the last time we talked regarding the Mar-a-Lago raid. Is that where you'd like to begin today? Well, let's start with that. And last time we talked about that, of course, we went through some background on the Fourth Amendment. At that time, we were in the initial stages of this and knew there'd be a lot more breaking news every day since that time. So I'm gonna review quickly and then we'll just go into some of the later developments. Back in the 1960s, when I was in law school, we had the left, groups like the Students for a Democratic Society and the Youth International Party and other groups like this that seemed like they were trying to destroy American society in the name of civil liberties. And Nixon was elected on a campaign of law and order, and most of us as conservatives rallied to that banner and considered ourselves supporters of law and order against the breakdown of crime and lawlessness that we saw around us. And I think we continued that particular pose up until the Clinton administration. And then in the years of the Clinton administration, we saw how when the left gets power, they can be really dangerous because the right, they can be dangerous in power too, but at least they have some ideas of the need to restrain power because they generally believe in the sinfulness of human nature and they know that government officials can abuse power greatly. The left with their utopian, which are actually dystopian ideas, seems to think that maybe people as a whole are bad people, but at least they have a little cadre of virtuous elite that and run everything in everybody's best interest, and so they see no need to restrain government power. And so I think especially the years of the Clinton administration caused a lot of us as conservatives to recognize that we want law and order, but we also believe in civil liberties. Or as you might put it, a law and order also means that the government, including the prosecutors, the judges, and the police, have to obey the law just like the rest of us. And Some of these protections, like the protection of trial by jury, the privilege against self-incrimination, the protection against unreasonable search and seizure, are for the protection of all of us. I remember in some of those earlier days, I was almost inclined, not totally, but almost inclined to the view that if if I don't have anything to hide, I shouldn't have any concern about the government coming in and searching. Well, I've come to realize, as I think have many conservatives, that yes, we do want to keep the government out of our daily lives, and we don't want them intruding, even if we don't have anything, at least anything that we know of, to hide. And it's also true that as complex and numerous as the laws and regulations are today, they can find a violation on the part of just about anybody if they look hard enough. And rather than just combing through everybody's files to find some comma out of place that they can prosecute for, I think our view is that no, they shouldn't be looking for obvious legal violations, obvious crimes, but not trying to make criminals out of normally law-abiding people. So I think with that, there is come in increased respect on the part of conservatives for civil liberties and constitutional rights, even those constitutional rights that apply to criminal defendants. And that became especially true again during the Obama years and now in the Biden years, we are seeing more than ever how the administration is weaponizing the institutions of government, particularly the FBI and others, in order to punish people that they would call dissidents, anti-government people. We're not anti-government, but we believe those in power are usurping functions of government that is not properly theirs. Anyway, the point I'm simply making is that we are concerned that our civil liberties are maintained, and that brings us to the raid that was conducted several weeks ago by FBI officials at former President Trump's complex, Mar-a-Lago, there in Florida. And quickly to look back on what the Fourth Amendment says, says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects, against unreasonable searches and seizures, shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now a key word throughout the entire Fourth Amendment is this word unreasonable. It doesn't give us a blanket protection against all searches and seizures, only against those that are unreasonable. So how do we determine what is an unreasonable search? Well, the first thing is that normally a search has to be based upon a warrant. That's not an absolute. There are some circumstances in which a warrantless search is allowed. For example, a search incident to a lawful arrest. If a person is arrested, the person doesn't have, the police officer doesn't have the time or opportunity to leave the person where he is and go down to the station to get a warrant and come back and search him. But we know that there's a need to search people incident to a lawful arrest because they could be carrying weapons contraband they could have evidence that they could destroy and root and things like that so we recognize that search incident to a lawful arrest is what we call an exigent circumstance that justifies a warrant a search and there are a few other circumstances none of which would apply here so a search in nearly all cases, including this one, has to be based upon a warrant. Now here is an absolute. No warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause. In other words, there has to be probable cause in order for a search. Police can't search without, they, they can't get a warrant unless they have probable cause. Probable cause, what does that mean? Well, the best definition we give to it is evidence that would cause a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed or that evidence exists on the person or place to be searched. Evidence that would cause a reasonable person to believe. It's a little bit higher, probably, than simply preponderance of evidence. It's much lower than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But Anyway, that's the standard that they have to meet in order to get that warrant. Now, in order to get that warrant, what they need to do is prepare an affidavit and present that affidavit to a neutral and detached magistrate that is a judge. It can be just a local police magistrate. In this case, we're talking about a federal magistrate. Whether he is neutral and detached is another question. Judge Reinhardt, was a strong contributor to the Democratic Party, to Obama on several occasions, had made several very, very anti-Trump comments, had been the attorney representing some of Jeffrey Epstein's personnel, and so we have reason to question how neutral and detached he really was. But at any rate, an affidavit was presented to him that he concluded gave probable cause for a search, So he issued the search warrant. Now the question is, did that affidavit really provide probable cause? We're gonna have a lot of questions that are gonna be litigated in the courts on this. They have, the FBI at first did not want to release this warrant. They wanted it to be sealed for security purposes, but a Florida judge ordered them to release the affidavit. So they released a redacted affidavit. Now by a redacted affidavit, we mean an affidavit that certain portions of it are whitened or blackened out, so you can't see them. There are sometimes reasons why certain things in an affidavit like this would need to be edited out, possibly because of certain witnesses who have testified to certain things, whose lives and safety might be in jeopardy or who might be intimidated from testifying if they were known. And so sometimes there are reasons for redacting. Whether those are valid reasons or not, we don't know at this point. There's a lot of redaction here. But that is undoubtedly going to be an issue that's going to be litigated in the courts. And I see this whole case being in court for a long, long time to come, probably several years. I see it possibly ending up at the U.S. Supreme Court. Various things that what we can tell from the affidavit is that it said that there was evidence of obstruction of justice and process. That's very vague. What kind of obstruction? What kind of justice? What kind of due process? What is the evidence that they had of this? All of that is very vague, and that'll be litigated I'm sure, but that's one of the things they claim. They further claim that President Trump had some classified materials. Part of the basis for concluding that was that earlier, President Trump and his staff had turned over to the archives some 15 boxes of material and reading over those materials led them to believe that there could be more. How and why it led them to believe that, Again, that's going to be a subject for a lot more litigation that is to come. The fact that they've gone through those 15 boxes that have been released earlier, well, you could argue, number one, that's evidence that there could be more. Or you could argue, on the other hand, number two, that that is evidence that Trump and his staff have been cooperative and that there's no need for a drastic procedure like this in order to get whatever else might be necessary. And, anyway, another factor here, too, concerns the claim that there is classified material here. Well, the fact is, the President does have authority to classify certain documents and authority to declassify documents. Now, his authority to classify documents is subject to some limitations, case of US versus Nixon, for example. In that case, the Supreme Court, well, dealt with an issue as to whether Congress or law enforcement agencies and so on could be entitled to certain documents that Nixon had in his possession, documents that he said were classified. And the claim that President Nixon was making at that time was that his authority to classify documents was virtually unlimited. He could classify anything he wanted to classify. Just stamp it classified and nobody else can see it. Well, the court said that clearly is not the case. He has the authority to classify documents, but that authority is not absolute. He might try to classify documents that there is no basis for classifying at all. He might try to classify documents that the reason he wants them classified is not that they're dangerous to public safety or national security, but because they're politically embarrassing to him. And so the authority to classify exists, but it is not absolute. And so the court said, when somebody makes a claim for documents that the president claims are classified, here's what's going to happen. These documents will be revealed to the court. The court then will examine the documents in camera, which means in the privacy of the court's chambers, taking care that nobody else sees them. And then the court will determine whether the reasons for classifying these documents outweighs the government's need to have them. Anyway, so that's the procedure on classifying documents. But now, what about declassified documents that were already classified? There it's a little different. There, the president's authority to declassify a document appears to be absolute. The only question is, does he have to go through any procedures to declassify it? And the answer, from what I can tell so far, this is another subject for litigation is that there are procedures that the president normally would follow, but he is not required to follow them. The very fact of carrying those documents across the threshold out of the White House probably is sufficient to constitute declassification of them. Anyway, that being the case, the argument that there are classified documents here, they're gonna have a hard time sustaining that, and sustaining any claim that there was any probable cause to believe the President had any classified documents, when in fact they would be declassified by the time he got them. Also you consider the time factor involved here some year and a half since President Trump was in office, and it does take time to sort through all these documents, and especially Hard to do that in those closing months after the election and before the president's term ran out because the election was contested and still is contested. And Mm -hmm. so time to sort is also a factor to consider in determining whether it was reasonable to go through this search. Notice again: the Constitution does not protect us against all searches, only against those that are unreasonable. And The fact of the president's past cooperation or non-cooperation is going to be evidence concerning whether this search is reasonable under the circumstances. Then we have another question here, and that is whether or not the search exceeded the scope of the search. See Article Four again says that not only must the there be an oath and affidavit providing probable cause, but it must describe the place to be searched, with particularity, and the persons or things to be seized. In other words, they have to be very specific, or quite specific at least, about where they are going to search. And to be able to search the entire mar lago complex, well that seems to go beyond the scope of what the search would have been reasonable at. Searching through melodia Trump's closets and so on like that. Whether there's any justification for that, I personally think the FBI is gonna have a hard time finding that this was justified, or there was any need for extending the search that far. There were other things taken during the search, including some of the president's private papers, including, including passports. And that could have been accidental. But at any rate, all of this would be evidence that even if there was probable cause and even if the magistrate truly was neutral and detached and even if the warrant was valid, the search may still have exceeded the areas designated in the warrant as the persons or places to be searched or seized. A lot of those issues are going to come up but we still have the question here are we dealing with issues here of a double standard after all you look at Hillary's 30,000 emails that were deleted you look at the way she basically destroyed a not sure what the right word is but anyway destroyed the computer that's held those those documents and so on, and yet nothing seems to be done about this, the FBI's lack of interest in the things that Hunter Biden has been doing, it seems like there is a double standard. And you have to remember that sometimes people in the FBI are not directly responsive to those who are in power over them. Many of them are civil service employees that are protected from one administration to the next, and that may be the case here. And so you probably have some that might be holdovers from many administrations ago that are there doing their jobs, but many probably have a very left-wing bias, and that works into how they do their jobs. But the politicization of the FBI and using the FBI to pursue political enemies. That's a dangerous thing, and not. I guess we have a couple of different concepts on how dangerous that is. You know, on the one hand, nobody is above the law, and that includes the former president. On the other hand, we don't like the idea of whoever's in power is going to use his power to go after his political opponents, including previous administrations. There's something that we find repulsive about that, and how we're going to work that out is hard to say. But... I'm thinking of a movie that I remember seeing back in 1988 when it came out. It was called Married to the Moth. And it was about a mafia group, and particularly about wives of the moth. And some of their trials that they had to face being married to characters who they loved, but who were in some ways unsavory and involved in violence and illegality and so on. There was one scene in particular that I recall from Married to the Mob where these mafia leaders and their spouses and girlfriends are at a high-class cocktail party and all of a sudden the doors are burst open and FBI agents charge in and start roughing up the Mafia personnel there. And anyway, one of the mafia wives starts yelling at one of the FBI agents, saying, what gives you the right to do this? What, how, how can you treat people like this? What makes you think you're any better than they are? FBI agent's response was, there is all the difference in the world between them and us. They are thieves and murderers. We worked for the president. And the interesting thing is, back when that came out in 1988, that was not intended to be a funny line. But today we look at it as humorous. Just a question is, which gang of thugs are we talking about? The ones that work for the president or the ones the president is fighting against? But... All of this politicization of law enforcement, particularly at the federal level with the FBI, but at the local levels as well, it's a dangerous thing. And it doesn't speak well for the direction our country is going. When there is such a double standard as to who they go after and who they ignore, as with the January 6th people, in contrast to the mobs that looted and burned during the summer of 2020, when we see all of that, it leads people to have disrespect for law and law enforcement in general. And justice is supposed to be blind. It's supposed to be even-handed. And I think we've got very good reason to question how even-handed our judicial system is today. I'd like to believe the FBI is still a very reputable institution and that 95, perhaps much a greater percent than that, are dedicated people who are doing their jobs trying to uphold law and order. But there does seem to be a political element within the FBI, and perhaps in local law enforcement as well, that is working its way up to the top, and that is a matter for concern. to Constitution Classroom. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, very, very interesting take you have on uh, some of the legalities behind the mar lago raid. I understand there's some other stuff that you've been working on that uh, is of great interest. Tell, tell me about that. Well, you've had a lot of cases coming out here at the Foundation. Still coming back to the old COVID issues. You know, we have a case here involving a pastor in Louisiana who had several misdemeanor citations against him for insisting on holding church services even though the governor's orders appeared to say he could not do so we have won a major victory on that in the fifth or rather in the Louisiana supreme court the Louisiana supreme court noted that the emergency powers act in Louisiana that gave the governor the power to proclaim emergencies and to curtail practices supposedly in public safety interest, that these were limited, particularly by a clause in the Emergency Powers Act that was inserted in that act by a very fine conservative Christian state senator. And one of them, those provisions that he inserted simply said that nothing in this act shall give the power the governor power to suspend or violate any right of Louisiana citizens guaranteed by either the U.S. or the Louisiana Constitution. And based upon that provision, the Louisiana Supreme Court said the governor had overreached his authority. Therefore, the criminal citations against him had to be dismissed, and the order was declared invalid. We consider that a great victory, but we are still in the... Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals on the same issue. And there we're hoping to set a few constitutional precedents. And this will probably be argued before the Fifth Circuit in early October. But hopefully we'll get some precedents set. And what we're hoping to do here in Alabama as well is to work on some legislation here that would get a provision like the one I just mentioned in the Louisiana emergency power statute, get a very similar provision added to the emergency powers act here in Alabama. Anyway, so those are interesting things going on, but one of the things we've been especially concerned about is military personnel, military who are subject to military discipline, but also the Constitution. You know, military people, when they take office when they enlist or when they are commissioned they take an oath that they will support and defend the constitution of the United States of America against all enemies foreign and domestic they take that oath and I would think therefore that they would enjoy the protections of the constitution that they've taken an oath to defend there has been a Viewpoint that some have expressed from time to time that you give up all your constitutional rights when you enter the military, but the Supreme Court has never said that. And in a number of cases, particularly Greer versus Spock, the court expressly said otherwise that you don't lose your constitutional rights when you enter the military. And so we believe that when the military issues orders, all that they are to get a COVID vaccination. When you have military personnel that have religious objections to an order like that, we believe they are entitled to assert those objections. Now what's been happening is the military has adopted an elaborate procedure by which people who have religious objections to vaccination can raise those objections. They can fill out a form stating their objections will be interviewed by a military chaplain whose job, according to orders they've been given, is basically to try to pressure them into giving up their constitutional right and getting the vaccination. Anyway, so as a result of this, we have seen quite a few servicemen in all branches of the service who are facing the discharge. Simply because they have religious objections to the vaccination. One of the most recent of these was a Marine Lieutenant Colonel. Fine, fine Christian man, a man with a 17 year exemplary, unblemished record, including combat tours. But he said that he believed that the vaccine, having been made from stem cells from aborted fetuses, taking the vaccine would make him complicit in abortion and he simply will not do it. He submitted his exemptions, his exemptions were denied. And anyway, then he was ordered to get the vaccination. He refused. And so he came before a military board of generals to determine what to do with him. They could have retained him, although we knew that was a long shot. They could have discharged him with an honorable discharge or they could have discharged him with a general discharge. Well, after hearing his case, they discharged him with an honorable discharge. So in other words, it could have been better, but it could have been a lot worse. Now in the meantime, he is pursuing his case in civilian courts and he's still in the military as he does so. And just a couple of weeks ago, Judge Mary Day a federal judge in Florida, issued an order certifying all U.S. Marine active and reservists as a class for a class action and prohibiting the Marines from either discharging them or otherwise disciplining them. So for the present time, he is rejoicing, he is in a position of relief and protection. But it is only a preliminary order. Chances are it is going to be appealed by the Marines. And we are praying and continuing to help him and hoping that all of this will work for his good. We have a similar matter involving Navy SEALs in Florida and involving an Air Force officer in Georgia and both of these have now been made into class actions, and so we now have preliminary orders that protect all members of the Marines, all members of the Air Force, and all members of the Navy from having to undergo vaccination if it violates their religious convictions. We don't have a similar order yet for the Coast Guard or for the Army, and those are being worked on. But the one for the Navy. Class action protecting Navy SEALs and all personnel. That is on appeal right now from the Federal District Court of the Northern District of Texas to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which includes Texas and Louisiana, some of that surrounding area. It's on appeal, and we have filed a friend of the court brief in support of the Navy SEALs. And in our brief, we pointed out that the Navy has granted virtually no religious exemptions from vaccination, but they have granted hundreds of medical exemptions. In you know, other words, people who had a medical exemption, I, if I take the vaccine, it's going to cause a reaction. I know that because I had a reaction against a vaccine when I was a child or other factors like this, and anyway, so we argue that because you've granted all of these medical exemptions, you have forfeited the argument that you cannot grant religious exemptions. If there can be people in the Navy walking around doing their job in the Navy with medical exemptions. Why can't there be people doing their jobs with religious exemptions as well? In fact, federal judge in dealing with the Air Force simply put it this way. He said, one thing that those who are exempted for religious reasons and those who are exempted for other reasons have in common, they're all unvaccinated. In other words, each would possess you think, in equal danger, if there, in fact, was any danger at all from them. But, anyway, he went on to say, military, he used the magic words, military readiness and health of the force, as a result, and as a result, received unlimited deference from those of us charged with resolving the dispute. And he noted further that the Marine Corps, in that case, had failed to demonstrate why they cannot accommodate a Marine when 95% of the Marine Corps is vaccinated and 98% of the whole United States military is vaccinated and a relatively weak and transient COVID-19 variant is dominant, even though those same Marines served entirely without vaccination in 2020 during the height of the pandemic and went on to say that, There's another factor here, they said that, look at what we are losing in the process. The government undoubtedly has some considerable interest, the court said, in maintaining the services of skilled, experienced, highly trained, patriotic, courageous, and esteemed Marines, and service members in other branches in whom the public has an immense financial investment and who are not typically readily replaceable. And further, they said, there is an interest in preserving constitutional rights. Quoting from the case of League of Women Voters of Florida versus Browning, the court said, the vindication of constitutional rights and the enforcement of a federal statute, in this case, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, serve the public interest almost by definition. And finally, the court simply said, the record fails to demonstrate any meaningful increment of harm to national defense likely to result because these Marines continue to serve as they have served, unvaccinated, but in accordance with proven, rigorous and successful safety protocols. So we quoted all that in our brief and said, as that applies to the Marines, according to Judge Self and similar language from Judge Meredith, It applies to the Navy, in this case, in the 5th century. We closed our brief by saying, with great discipline and a great sacrifice, plaintiffs of Hellese have pledged their lives to the service of their country, and now their leadership of their country appears to be making war upon them, threatening their livelihood, their careers, and their reputations simply for obeying God in a land dedicated to religious liberty. In their defense, they place their trust in the Constitution they have taken an oath to support and defend, and in the courts who have the duty of enforcing the Constitution. They have never failed us. We pray the courts will not fail them in their hour of need. We closed our brief, and we will simply have to see what the court does in this case, but the. Fifth Circuit is a pretty conservative circuit, and they have a good trial record in the case below them. And so I'm optimistic that the Navy is gonna prevail at the appellate level as they have they have at the lower court level. And hopefully pretty soon we'll get some relief for the Army and for the Coast Guard as well. Well, let's get to what we've been talking about here before. And we've been interrupted by the way the Constitution applies on a daily basis and seeing these cases like Miralago and cases involving our military personnel and all of these are going on right now before our eyes but let's look to some of the timeless principles that our constitution is based upon and we've been talking about the basic premises of Hebrew law because Hebrew law is the foundation of our Constitution. In fact, John Adams at one point simply said that as much as I admire the Greeks, I believe the Hebrews have done more to civilize the world. Moses did more than all of their philosophers. And repeatedly, John Adams and others called upon the Hebrews and their legal system as being the foundation of our legal system today. So, let's look to some of the principles of Hebrew law, and we're not gonna get finished with these today. We've started them, so I'm gonna simply review quickly. Number one, that God exists, and He is one God, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, righteous, just, truthful, immutable, and loving. The idea of the unity of God, that There is one God, and therefore there is one truth. And therefore there is one law. We don't have to deal with conflicts between the law code given by Marduk of the Babylonians, or Baal of the Canaanites, or Ra of the Egyptians, or Zeus of the Greeks. We have one law because we have one truth, because we have one God. Second principle, then, is that God... Is the source of all true law, Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Notice that the Lord is our lawgiver. But notice in that one verse of Isaiah, we see the three branches of government, at least the three functions of law. The Lord is our judge, judicial. The Lord is our lawgiver, legislative. The Lord is our king, executive, all three combined in that one verse in Isaiah. He's the source of all law. Third, that law reflects the will and character of God. We sometimes ask the question, are God's laws good because he gave them? Or did he give them because they are good? And the answer to that question is, yes. Yes. In <laughs> other words, yes to both. Simply, you cannot separate God and his character from his law. Yes, he gave just laws because he is a just God, and therefore the laws that he give would be just, just laws. So unlike other nations where Marduk might have given a law code and we obey that code just for the sake, because we don't want to get in trouble with Marduk, not necessarily because there's any particular value to those laws, but we obey them just to stay out of trouble, we obey God's laws because they are good. And we have sacrifice to cover sin. But the sacrifice, unlike the sacrifice in pagan nations where we sacrifice to the pagan god to appease his wrath, or to gain his favor. We sacrifice to God in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, to satisfy his justice. And from what I can tell, that's a concept we don't find anywhere, except in Christian and Hebrew law. So law reflects the will and character of God. But the fourth point that we just alluded to is the God's justice requires punishment for sin. In Ezekiel 18.4, we read, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And so there is a punishment that goes with sin. That's why God doesn't just simply write sin off. Sin requires punishment. But he paid the punishment for us. By dying there in that cross. Well, understanding those as being the basic principles of the law, let's go on to a few more points that show how we fit in. First of all, man is created in the image of God. In the image of God, we read in Genesis 1, created he, him. And in Genesis 9, 6, where God institutes the law of capital punishment, he says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because life is cheap? No. For the image of God made he man. Human life is of infinite value. And therefore, we prescribe the extreme penalty for the willful and wrongful taking of that human life. Man being created in the image of God has human dignity and his life has bound In Psalm 8.5 we read, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and has crowned him with glory and honor. And man's being created in the image of God is the basis for human rights. Because part of being created in God's image implies human dignity. And certain rights go with that dignity. That's the basis for human rights. Another basis for human rights is in the negative commands of Scripture. For example, when Scripture says, Thou shalt not murder, it conveys by implication a right to life. When it says, Thou shalt not steal, it conveys by implication a right to property. But the sixth point then, is that even though we are created in the image of God, ever since the fall, man has been and continues to be sinful. We don't live up to God's expectation. We don't even live up to the image that he created within us. In Psalm 51.5, we read, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In Isaiah 53.6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him that is Christ, the iniquity of us all. So man is sinful. Now, because man is sinful, God has established human government. Purpose of human government is to punish crime and to preserve order. In Romans 3:1 through 7, we read that function: that he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou doest evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword of God, or the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, executing wrath upon those who do evil. Purpose is for punishment, but also for deterrence. In other words, civil government restrains the exercise of sin. Government can't take away the desire to sin, but it takes away The inclination to sin simply because we know that crime isn't going to pay. We consider robbing a store and we see there's a policeman on the street corner and we know that if we rob that store, we're going to be arrested and put in jail. And so we decide crime doesn't pay. And so that's the purpose of human government, to preserve order and also to punish crime. Criminals are to be punished. But before government may punish crime, and this is the eighth principle, great precaution must be taken to ensure that nobody is wrongly convicted. You know, we could see that a crime has been committed we just take a bunch of people out in the street and and execute them for it. Probably get the guilty person in the process, but a lot of innocent persons at the same time. But because these are human beings created in God's image. That is wrong. And so government has to take precautions to ensure that nobody is wrongfully convicted. In most pagan systems, the individual person is of minuscule value compared with that of society and that of the state. And as rulers seek to advance the public interest, which they commonly identify with their own interests, it matters little if individual lives are sacrificed in the process. Likewise, as judges try to preserve law and order and punishing criminals, they don't care very much whether innocent persons are convicted and innocent lives are ruined in the process. But that's true in the pagan world. In the Hebrew world, and likewise in the Christian world, the view is different, because all men, criminals included, are created in God's image, all men possess human dignity, and they possess infinite value. And for this reason, the law has to be exceedingly careful to ensure that innocent persons are not wrongly convicted, and that human dignity, even the dignity of guilty persons, must be respected. And the Hebrew system therefore provides far more protections for even the person who is accused of a crime than just about any other society in the face of the earth. For example, I guess for example is going to have to come next week.